0: Galen, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Uh, it's great to, great to have you on here, mate. We've got loads to dive into um, about your service, about your book. And um, I kind of just, before we get into it, can you just give people, uh, you know, a real kind of uh, like a brief oversight into where you're from, um, where you served, who you served with?
1: So I grew up in Colorado, in Nebraska, in the United States. And went to West Point, graduated with the class of 2005, which is sometimes referred to as the 9-11 class. Hmm. And that's because we had just entered right before 9-11 and were thus the last people to enter in peacetime. And then uh graduated and commissioned into armor and became a tank platoon leader at a Fort Carson, which is also in Colorado. Deployed to Iraq in 2006 to the Diyala province where Bakuba and Kalis and Hib-Hib is. And then was wounded in that deployment in September of 06. We came back. I returned to duty. I rejoined my same company but in a different platoon. And then trained up and we deployed into Baghdad in 2007 at the end. Then in 2008, the uh, Shia uprising in the spring kicked off the fighting in Sadr City. And that just happened to be where we were at. Uh, As a result, we ended up being part of one of the most unique military operations in history, where we breached an obstacle the long ways instead of the short way, and then built our own obstacle as we went. Uh, Over the 60 days, it was probably some of the most intensive mechanized combat. in iraq after the the initial invasion was done uh was wounded on literally the last day of that and uh that was pretty much my end of my combat time i was able to to recover enough to take command of a tank company and then uh, kind of fell apart with my uh injuries kind of flaring up and that was the end of the career for that
0: and what kind of uh what kind of work are you in now
1: uh, so I, I, tried to be a police officer for a bit and, uh, gave that up last year, shortly after the book came out and now I do construction for uh, residential construction.
0: There's a lot to go into there, mate. And this is where I should tell the listeners that we will be doing this, um, as a two part, um, a two part, so we don't have to rush everything. So, um, mate, what was it like for you growing up then? You mentioned, you know, Colorado, Nebraska, um, Obviously, America, I think there's a lot of different experiences that people can have growing up, depending on where they grow up. So how how was that for you?
1: Uh, You know, my childhood was awesome. I grew up on a ranch and a farm. So it was hard work, but we were outdoors all the time. I had a family that was tight and I had a family that was patriotic. We trace our service to the country, to at least the United States, all the way back to like the 1840s. Uh, and it's, it's kind of fun because I fought in Cider City with some of the same units that my great, 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 great grandfather had served with in the Mexican war. Right. Uh, so it's, it's kind of cool to have that long history, uh, kind of circle back, but it is, it was fun because I could go to the, the grocery store at age 10 on my bicycle with a wagon tied behind it. And get a box of ammunition, a case of beer, and some <laughs> eggs. Put it on the the family tab, and nobody said anything about it.
0: That was pretty awesome. So, what what are the kind of uh, growing up there in, in that kind of environment? What do you think were kind of like the lessons when it came to, you know, morality and and what was expected of you, um, both as a as a kid and then you know in in adulthood?
1: You know, the, I think the biggest thing was that you have to work hard. There's no such thing as an easy as an easy gig. And uh, the other thing is, is that everything's about service. You know, you're, you're serving your fellow mankind, no matter what your role is, that's, that's what you're trying to do. And there's always uh, a bigger team aspect to the the ranch. You know, we, we had to take turns doing night calving. We had to take turns doing the, the hay cutting and bailing at night. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's not about you.
0: What, what, when, you, when you say you're working on a ranch as well, I mean, assuming you went to, you, you're doing your schooling at that time, but then you almost kind of got like a full-time job around that. Is that kind of fair to say?
1: Oh, yeah. It's, and because I, I wanted to go to West Point, so I was pushing myself in all kinds of different extracurricular activities at school so that I'd be competitive for it. Uh, so I would leave for school, oh, she was like 6, 6.30 in the morning, have practice before school go through school, have sports after school, get home and then do chores. And then I would do homework after that. So it's, I mean, it was a long day. Get, get to bed at maybe eight, nine o'clock. Uh, you know, to put it in perspective, I think we were averaging 80 hours on the ranch during the school year.
0: What, what kind of sports were you into? Uh,
1: I did hockey, loved hockey, not that good at it. Love football, not that good at it. <laughs> uh I was more of a runner. I, c- I can run for a long time while I could, I should say. Uh, so my school was so small, though, that you're obligated to participate every season. Otherwise, we couldn't fill the team. Okay.
0: <laughs> Again, that's not a bad way of doing things, though, to be honest. Because um, sometimes, I think especially at that age, it's like, there's a lot of stuff where you look back on and that someone introduced you to. Maybe like oh, I would like, st- I wish I'd stuck that out. But if you were given the choice, you kind of walk away from it. <laughs> uh, you, men- you mentioned West Point. Um, what- can you explain to people what West Point is and where did that idea come from you that uh, come to you that you would attend there?
1: So uh, West Point, it's it's kind of like your Sandhurst. You know, it's, it's a military academy and it graduates about a thousand cadets into second lieutenants into the army. Uh, each each branch or I should say department. So the Navy, the air force and the army each have their own service academy that go into the active duty military. And it is your four years there. It's, it's a prestigious college. It pushes you academically, but on top of that, you're required to do military training and perform military, uh, chain of command duties during the school year. And you're required to do sports, uh, and it's it's year round but what's cool about it though is that you're on active duty you're getting you're getting paid and the the cost to your parents is a lot less which my parents appreciated mm-hmm. uh, but at the end of it you come out of it with a service obligation to the army uh when i was in it was 5 years active duty
0: and then 3 reserve okay and you, and that's so you have to anyone who goes to west point has to then serve in the in the military correct at
1: least at that time. I think now football players can go to the NFL when they're done.
0: Right. Because that, that was going to be one of my questions. Because I was like, what about these ones on the football team?
1: <laughs> well, you know, when I was in, the the football players, they kind of got a raw deal because to be competitive, you got to be big. Right. But then to commission, they had to make the Army's height and weight standards, which were significantly less than what it takes to be competitive. So these guys, even though they're not fat, they're they're just big. They got to shrink down and the season ends at the end of December and then they got to make height and weight their senior year by June. So it's just, that's rough.
0: Mm, yeah. Not good. Um, yeah, nobody, nobody likes to lose gains either, not muscle gains. No, definitely not. So when you, uh, you joined up obviously in peacetime, what, what were you expecting? Like a full career or you were just thinking a few years and then back to ranching?
1: So I was planning on doing a full, a full career in it. You know, I've, I had family members that had, given full careers to the military. And that that was what my hopes and dreams were to do. And uh, you know, I was realistic. I thought maybe I might be good enough to, to maybe command a battalion one day, but uh, I figured probably 20 years, maybe 25 would be as much as I could do. Uh, and I thought during that time, you know, maybe if I got lucky, I might get to go to Kosovo or Bosnia for six, seven months. Uh, and that would be that, you know, I never first saw it being... An entire career of exclusively war.
0: And what what was your kind of exposure to war, if any, in the in the family and, or or in your town? Kind of growing up.
1: So growing up, my family was pretty close now with my aunts and uncles, and I had an uncle who was a mortar platoon sergeant in Vietnam, and I was very close with him. And our ranch's foreman was an old retired first sergeant or one of your company sergeant majors. He had fought in Korea and in Vietnam and was just a great mentor to have. Uh, I had another uncle who had been in the Air Force. So there was, there was a lot of exposure to the military. But then, you know, through my Uncle Joe and Ed Day, got a lot of experiences kind of passed on about, you know, it's not glorious. It's not glamorous. it's 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 gritty and visceral and it's tough.
0: So obviously, when you were um, went in with those kind of peacetime ideas, think you'd have like a peacekeeping tour or something, then nine eleven happens, Afghanistan happens. Where were you, and, and what was going through your kind of mind, you in these key moments of nine eleven, and then the invasion of Iraq? Your first year at West
1: Point, you don't have a whole lot of privileges, so we weren't allowed to watch TV. But that morning, I was picking up uh, a candidate who wanted to to tour West Point and see if they wanted to come the next year, and I was picking them up at the recruiting office when the second plane hit the towers. And while I was waiting to pick him up, the, the lady there at the desk was saying, Hey, did you hear about the plane that crashed into the World Trade Center? And I looked at her and I remember saying, there's no way that's an accident. You don't crash into a 110 story tower on accident. You can see that thing from forever and it's a beautiful day, no reason for it. And then as we were talking, we watched that second plane hit live and just that instant, you know like, we're going to war mm. uh and you know the rest of that day was just absolutely chaotic uh, very sobering in the the month that that followed there you know it was very obvious we were going to war in afghanistan um i had a friend who had been in afghanistan in 98 um so talking with him kind of got a little bit of an idea what what we were looking at did not see iraq coming though
0: i should have asked how did you choose to go into um to go into armor because obviously Iraq was a, you know, big armored operation. Um, Was that something that influenced it or was it, were you already kind of looking at that?
1: So it it influenced it some, honestly, the tank had won my heart in 2002. Uh, Up until 2002, I was planning on being a light infantryman, airborne all the way, that sort of thing. And your second summer at West Point, you get to go out to Fort Knox and they introduce you to the different branches there. Army, So you shoot artillery and air defense lets you try to shoot down a styrofoam drone. And But the tanks, they let us do a tank-on-tank battle. And I was in the commander's hatch for that and instantly fell in love. Uh, but then my uh, my major allowed me to go to uh, Heidelberg, which is the 5th Corps headquarters, during the invasion of Iraq in 03. And I was absolutely blown away by how fast the mechanized forces were moving up from kuwait and just their their power on the battlefield was just mind-blowing and after that
0: I'm like this is totally me yeah i always feel like you know i'm happy with the tours that i got feel lucky that i got the tours that i got but also as someone that was in armored infantry uh, there's always that part of me it's like oh, that would have been so fucking cool <laughs> <laughs> to just like to just being a massive like division-sized op just rolling up positions oh yeah but there you go. I still feel we got pretty good hands, you know, compared to, like, a lot of people. Because I was the same as you, mate. I was I was very much of the thing of, like, oh, I guess, you know, maybe some Northern Ireland tours and Bosnia tours. You know, didn't see anything like what we had going up. So w- when you um, graduated West Point, then you got, to, got to, go to go to tanks. Can you explain, like, how does that work? Because here, obviously, we've got, you know, you have, we've got tank regiments. Some of them are light roll. Some of them are in the main battle tanks but they're the exclusive regiments. And we've talked to people on here before who have been in like cavalry divisions who were infant, you know, who did more of an infantry role. So what was your unit like and was it exclusively tanks or how, how was all that kind of work on the American side?
1: So on the American side, we've got really three different levels of units. You've got the light guys, which, you know, they're walking everywhere. They've got cavalry, which are armor branch officers in those. And the cavalry is mounted on Humvees and then the next level up, if you think of protection wise is your strikers in the striker brigades, you know, it's an eight wheeled vehicle. And when I was in, they had uh, the mobile gun system, which was a tank platoon of three, uh three man crews. And it was kind of a tank All platoon. Right, okay. <laughs> and then they had cavalry also in that. And then on the mechanized side, you've got the legitimate tanks yeah, the M1 Abrams and then the cavalry. Uh, when I first came in, we, they were, the cavalry was either mounted in, uh, a straight Bradley, uh, kind of like the warrior. Uh, and then over time, it, they shifted away to a, a half Bradley, half Humvee mix. So the battalion that I ended up in, um, uh, I didn't know what battalion I was going to until I actually got to Fort Carson. And then I went to a tank pure company instead of a cavalry unit.
0: Uh, what, so how many tanks have you got then in, in a, would you go on tank platoons or tank troops? Or?
1: Yeah. So our platoon is your troop and it's, it's four tanks and each company has three platoons. And then they also have a pair of tanks in the headquarters section, one for the commander and then one for his executive officer, and then the uh, the first sergeant has a an armored personnel carrier instead of a tank.
0: So we're, we're talking some serious serious firepower, some serious kind of heavy metal uh, going on there. Can you tell us a little bit about the um, the the Abrams for people that aren't familiar with it?
1: So the Abrams is it's the heavyweight. You know, it's it's, it's a lot like your Challenger. It's over seventy tons. Wow. <laughs> but what's awesome is it's it's got a jet engine, a jet turbine that propels it and it goes zero to forty five pretty quickly. I mean you can feel forty five. The tank comes by on the road at forty five miles an hour, everybody knows because you can feel the ground trembling underneath it. And when you're inside the hatch, you can feel the tank's vibration. Uh and then the cannon is 120 millimeters or four point seven inches in diameter. Which is just it's phenomenal. Uh when that thing fires it's more impressive than an artillery piece because you get to watch that round go downrange. But if you're firing a sable round, it's it's going a mile a wow. second. that's insane! And then on top of that, we've got three machine guns. the The tank commander has got a 50 caliber machine gun up on top, so a half inch slugs going downrange. And then you've got the coaxial mounted uh, 240 Bravo, which is a 7.62 millimeter, or sorry, I should say it's it's a 240 Golf. Um, or two forty Charlie, depending on what you've got, and then the loader has another machine gun. But his T real purpose in life is it's the
0: backup in case the coax breaks, so you can just swap them out, plug them in. Sweet. So obviously, there's a lot of weapon systems to use there. How much training and and like what kind of um what what kind of scale training were you getting when you joined um when, when you joined up and like obviously. I'm sure that probably changed with the Iraq situation. But, you know, when you first came to to the job, you know, like one of the big things that the British Army does is they go out to Canada and have those massive kind of exercises out in Batas and things. But then a lot of the time, you know, you're just going out in your you know platoons and things like that. Like, how is it working with Americas Because you've got a lot of training area over there, right? So you put it to good use.
1: Right. So you, your training exercises, you know, you've got three different levels. You have individual skills, and the platoon would put those on. Those are pretty easy to take care of, uh, going out to the rifle range, shooting uh, the small weapons. And then is put on by a battalion, or, and it's every day you're firing a, a different table of exercises, uh, daytime, nighttime. And it takes a fair amount of space for that because if you think about those rounds, even though the training ones are designed to not fly very far, they still, they can go a long ways. After you do gunnery, uh, you've got your maneuvers that you work on tactics and those, you know, generally we would at least be at the company level. And then when we went to the National Training Center, you've got the entire brigade uh, out there, and then the National Training Center in the desert of California is just—it's massive.
0: Is that Twenty Nine Palms? Is it, or is this a different one?
1: It's—it's it's north of Twenty Nine Palms. It's actually a separate base, and it's—I pro- think it's double the size of Twenty Nine.
0: Yeah, it's—it's it's just insane to think of the—the the size of that. Um, when—when when was it that you started thinking that you might actually be kind of putting the train into use, um, for real?
1: I knew that as soon as we invaded Iraq, and it was obvious that it was going to be a long a longer duration occupation i knew that i would be putting some training to use in a hurry uh, upon graduation we we graduated from west point with the assumption we'd be in combat within a year right uh so you went into your basic uh so after you graduate you go to your officer basic course which is all tactics for armored warfare and you want to talk about some serious focus uh you know you paid attention to everything they said because as soon as we were done with air, I knew I was going as an individual replacement. So I was
0: going to be meeting down range and would not get a chance to train with my guys. How was it kind of decided about what, that you would go into, you know, that rather than go to, to a place for, you know, a full kind of build up, beat up?
1: So the brigade I was assigned to, uh, when I graduated, they were deployed and, about halfway through my time at Fort Knox in the officer basic course, they got into a series of fights and they needed some replacements. And so I knew right then that that's where I was going. So I would, I would go to Fort Carson just long enough to do the pre deployment uh, required trainings, which was like 45 days worth of training. And then, but that was all just as individual replacements. So you're not training tactics with your platoon. Uh,
0: and then I would, kind of land and see where I landed. It's quite a lot, actually. That surprised me you said 45 days, you know, because that, that's uh, pretty in-depth. That was all Iraq-specific, was it?
1: Uh, it was Iraq and Afghanistan-specific. So th- what they did is they took all the individual soldiers coming to the brigade. So we're talking cooks, infantrymen, armor lieutenants such as myself, field artillery guys, mechanics, you name it. And we all went through the same training, which involved uh, qualification with our rifles, uh, we had some radio classes, some Arabic classes. Uh, a lot of it felt very check the blockish. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: you mean so you you what you mean by that is just like take just take taking them off a list.
1: Yeah, you exactly. Know. You you did this check
0: next. It's like a, a sausage factory. A sausage factory, just kind of like, yeah. We we have a very similar one over here. It's a lot shorter in duration, but that's exactly how I felt. Now you go into this serial. Go and do that. Tick. Go and do that one. Doesn't matter. Did you do great on it? Did you do awful on it? Doesn't matter. Tick. the next. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um. So when when did you um when when did you when did you get your orders um and when when did you know that you were shipping out?
1: So I got my orders in May uh, that I was going to be shipping out, and so shipped out at the end of July.
0: So how how was that with um you know did you get a chance to go back home see the family and how how did all that go for you?
1: Well, I had a, a sister living in Colorado Springs, so I was actually sleeping on her couch
0: <laughs> during the uh, during the training.
1: <laughs> during this training, it was such a that's cool. It was such a weird time because you know I'm, I'm super keyed up, uh, but at the same time excited and nervous, uh, trying to find a place to live on my own, so I'm not crashing on my sister's couch when I come back. Uh, it was just it was a lot of fun though.
0: What were your expectations like? Um, for what you'd find out on tour of, like, expectations both of the situation of the ground, but also kind of like, well, what, what was your expectations of yourself going into it?
1: You know, I think going into it, I, I thought I was going into a platoon uh, immediately. I felt like I'd been pushing myself hard enough. I'd been trained well enough that I would do well in it. Uh, I knew that the situation uh, in the the DL province where the, the battalion was at was, you know, it was... Not a good situation up there. It was every day was IED. Uh, Abu Zakrawi, the the leader of Al Qaeda in Iraq, had just been killed, which ended up being my platoon's area. Uh, he was killed in June in Hib Hib, and then when I got there, I ended up having Hib Hib as part of my platoon's area. You know, I went into it with maybe even a little too much confidence. <laughs>
0: That's never happened to an officer before. <laughs> never,
1: never, especially lieutenants, yeah.
0: <laughs> could you read the map? is the big question I could oh, yeah. you
1: know that was like the one thing that was really good. one of the things that horrified me when I got there was to find out that we actually didn't have good maps for our whole area right. uh, they were using the the computer screen maps, which was great until one day they all conked out, and it was back to the paper maps, and then we drove off the edge of our map sheet and like, well, it's a good thing we know where we're at because. We don't have a map.
0: Oh, yeah, that's pretty poor as well. Like what? That's got to be three years after the invasion, or something like that.
1: Oh yeah. So we had a, an aviation like one to two hundred fifty thousand scale map that was just it was so big of a map sheet you just couldn't see what you're looking at very well. And then we had a you know the good hundred uh, one to fifty thousand maps, and those ones were great except for I didn't have the whole area. I had bits and pieces of it, right. which was frustrating.
0: Yeah, and for anyone who's been to Iraq, you remember when you top down a top down look on a city there, There's not like a top down look on an American city, which is like laid out in a nice neat grid. No, nah. you know, and everything. So like one to two hundred and fifty thousand it's just a big blur of <laughs> just big blur of of building. Um, when when you got out there, then what was your kind of first impressions of of Iraq?
1: You know, it was just. Mind blowing. First of all, what blew my mind was that we were gonna we landed at Blad Air Base on the other side of the Tigris River, and then they were gonna convoy us over the the Tigris down the Iron Triangle, which was known for ambush and IEDs, to the FOP and then get issued
0: ammunition. Nice. <laughs> what was it? What was it, What was the, the idea behind that?
1: Well, it's just like, well, we're gonna get there, and then we'll get you to your units, and your units can get you ammunition, but. You know, fortunately for me my brother was at Balad at the time and i met up with him and was like yeah now that you're going to have ammunition going out the gate so he he loaned me some ammo from his cash and at least i didn't feel like a target you know I, was, I felt like a soldier at that point
0: yeah that's so weird uh what what was your brother serving in
1: so he was in a long range surveillance detachment and they were operating out a Balad and i really don't know what exactly they
0: did <laughs> uh,
1: but we'd run into him from time to time.
0: Yeah. Well, how long had he been in the military for? Presumably, he joined before you, then.
1: So he went in in '99. Okay. All right.
0: So is there, was there a good bit of competition between the two of you when it came to just well, just life in general? I suppose.
1: Uh, you know, he was—he's a good big brother in the sense that he was—he always saw his role as more of like a mentor to me, okay. and kind of like a protector. So. We kind of went different paths. He was enlisted and ranger, all that fun stuff that I had thought about doing. But then I took my own path and went mechanized. And because our paths were different enough, we didn't really feel any competition, which was nice because then we could just be brothers and look at each other as friends instead of as, you know, I got a chip on my shoulder. Did he salute you? He did. He he knew it would drive me nuts too. <laughs>
0: so what, what it must be um kind of weird for you to have being out there at the same time you know we've had someone else on the show before who was deployed with his brother and unfortunately his brother was killed at the same time as they were in theater yeah i, I mean I can't even begin to imagine to be honest with him but what what was 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 that something you ever worried about or was it a confidence that you like you had at that time that it'll never be you it'll never be him
1: you know it I never even thought that we'd be in the same place, same time, because the military is so big. Iraq is so big. I mean, it's a huge country. And, you know, even when I was deploying, like, well, he's on the, he's theoretically only on the west side of the the Tigris and I'll be on the east side. So we won't really bump into each other. No big deal. Uh, But just to, to be able to meet up was just so surreal. And I mean, this is stuff that legends are made out of. Is to be able to have dinner with your brother in a combat zone in a foreign country is just, it's phenomenal.
0: You almost kind of want a little bit of IDF at the time just to really cement the experience. <laughs> oh, I know, right? Yeah. So what what was the first time that you came under any, any kind of fire?
1: So the first time we came into fire, we were in Callis, And it was just a sniper shot and he sucked. And I don't know what he hit. And we never figured out where he was at, but you know, it's, you hear that shot and the rifle crack of the, the round, you know, like, all right. So he's shooting at us, but where, and then he's just gone. Uh, like, all right, whatever. And that was actually the only time that deployment anybody shot around me. Right. Everything else is just IEDs. Uh, so then my, my first experience with that was, uh, an IED that was daisy chained. And one of them, the one that was closest to my tank actually just, uh, it was a little poof. They, they didn't wire it right. And it rolled out into the road in front of us. (laughs) So we're sitting there in the middle of this highway, you know, to to paint the picture of this highway, it had been hit so many times by IEDs. It looked like the moon, like every 20, 30 yards, there's a new crater. And you drove on that thing just cringing because you knew you were getting hit. So to watch this thing roll out in the front of us was just like, well, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good.
0: What kind uh, of what kind of, uh, kind of ID was it? Was it shells? or?
1: or... It was a uh, – I think it was a 122-millimeter artillery, probably an HE. And what's funny is at the time, the the Iraqis in our area – they were shoot. They were using mainly Soviet-era rounds. So they had Russian markings on them. Well, none of them could read it. And our local insurgents got a bunch of illumination rounds. And we called them flashbang IEDs because they'd go off and be really, really bright. And there'd be a bang, but that's it. You, you see floaters for a while, then you're good. Uh, so that was pretty nice. We called it the happy times.
0: <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, so at the time then, the IED threat you're talking about, we're talking about your kind of traditional shells, you know, remote-controlled IEDs, command-wire IEDs, that kind of thing. Um, and I'm imagining in an Abrams, you're probably not too bad, badly set against that kind of ID.
1: Yeah, usually what would happen is if it went off next to your tank, it would break the hub cap covers. Uh, and you'd leak some oil out of a hub, and that was it. And it was generally no big deal. Uh, Every now and then they would have something a little bit bigger that would actually take a tank and do some serious damage to it or get shrapnel inside. So the one that got me was a a pair or a three 155 millimeter rounds that were all wired together. But when that detonated, the bottom went first and it launched the second, third ones up into the air. And by the time that those ones detonated, it got shrapnel down inside the tank. So they ended up taking shrapnel from like the groin up.
0: All right. So unwittingly, basically creating an airburst. Um, you know, kind of like an airburst IED, like we had. Um, I ju- do. you think that was? Do you think there was any kind of deliberate planning in that, or do you think that was just pure kind of luck?
1: That yeah, was just pure luck. I mean, it was, it was kind of a, a freak one on its own type of thing. We knew that they were going to start targeting the tanks because we changed up the way we were doing business and we started going down a road for to soak up IEDs where we had no choice but to turn around then come right back up so they they'd be able to watch us go by and then go get themselves set up and wait for us to come back so we knew we were going to get his just a matter of time Uh, but I don't think that they had any intentions of being crafty with it okay
0: well we'll come on and talk about your injuries and stuff but let's talk a bit about a bit more about that kind of thing you know the kind of tactics that you were using out there um were you going out in tanks all all the time and 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 what was the kind of uh, missions that you were running
1: so we had two two main types of missions we did route clearance patrols in the tanks and we would take two tanks to a section of tanks out we would run the iron Triangle. Uh, Which was the road from Bakuba to Galabia, and then from Galabia north up to Callus, and then Callus back down. And this triangle, we were soaking up the IEDs on it because it was it was just so prolific and in the IED hotspots that it was known as the Iron Triangle. So we would do a lot of that, and we would do it morning and night, and we would do our best to to vary the times. But the bottom line is we were just soaking up IEDs so it wasn't we weren't trying to be sneaky about it and then the other kind of missions we would do we would take the whole platoon in humvees and then we would go do either kinetic ambushes or uh, raids or we'd be going out and doing your classic counterinsurgency uh, population engagement type of stuff
0: so when you say soaking up IEDs
1: explain what you mean by that literally driving down the road and hoping that they would decide to blow up your tank, which has a better chance of taking it than blowing up a Humvee or, or a cargo truck instead.
0: And, and what a lot of these IEDs were, um, they were controlled, you know, so they had to, they, these things weren't kind of uh, left to be victim operated. These were people deciding, I'm going to set the ID off.
1: Exactly. Yeah, they were all command detonated on us, whether it was hardwire or whether it was using a, a phone, or I think they had moved out of the garage door openers by then, but you know, some sort of radio controlled device to, to set it off.
0: you got a pretty funny story in here about the, con- um, the, the phone signal. you want to tell us about that? Oh, God.
1: <laughs> so, Hip, I, I think I mentioned before that Abu Zarqawi was killed in Hip in June. And that town hated our guts. The icing on the cake for hatred was when we accidentally had a boo-boo and the field artillery dropped a 155 millimeter round into the town. Oh, fuck. So they hated our guts. And we got word that the insurgents in Hip Hip were planning on hitting us when we went to our weekly governance meeting, uh, which the governance office is right off the highway. It's got a big parking lot and then they've got their building. So we decided we're going to go in with tanks and uh, be protected that way. And then at the same time we're thinking about it, the, the informant said that the the IED would be in the parking lot itself, which means that the, the police had to be in on it because nobody can dig a hole and put an IED in your parking lot without you knowing it if you're, you've got a guard tower. So we were going to go in with the tanks. We were going to point the tanks at the building, make sure that they understood that we're on to you, and then we're just going to leave and let let that message be so the thing with the tanks is they don't have the warlock to jam the signals
0: what's what's warlock so you mean
1: so the the warlock it's a an electronic uh, counter ied jammer it is you know it basically makes a, a cell phone dead zone everywhere you go uh, it's not very big it's it's only uh at the time those ones were only good for like 25 meters around you it's not very big but Better than nothing. Well, the tanks don't have them. All right. Uh, the tanks, even though they're bigger than a Humvee, they never bothered to mount one on at the time. So we went out in our tanks and we rolled in, and I was in charge of the tanks while the actual platoon leader AJ Boys went in and had some sharp words with the the local police, and we left, and nothing happened. I'm like, well, that's. That's cool. I guess they got the message. Well that night our informant called us. He's like, hey, I got some good news. Um they buried the IED too deep and it didn't work. So then after you guys left, when it didn't work, they decided to dig it up and set it at a shallower depth. But this time they decided they should test the signal to make sure they didn't bury it too deep. So they called the IED and blew themselves up while they're staying at the hole. <laughs>
0: uh. What was the what was the kind of like? How would you rate the opposition at that point?
1: You know the opposition in Diala in in oh six the guys that we were seeing. One, they were afraid to fight us toe to toe. I mean, absolutely terrified to fight us, and with good reason. They had tried it and they had lost miserably. Uh, they tried it one more time in October and they lost miserably.
0: Right. So when you say that, sorry, we we talking about previous. Uh, Units that have been out on previous tours and that kind of thing.
1: Well, like the the battalion before me, they had some some good fights before I showed up where they exchanged machine gun fire and such with the enemy. And then after I was wounded and not, I didn't partake in it because I was sitting at the CP, um, we took a tank section into Bakuba and they redecorated the the town with 120 millimeter. Uh, But those guys... They only did a couple of times. For the most part, they would just try to blow us up, and their IEDs at the time were not nothing really spectacular. I mean, they they would still inflict casualties, but it wasn't it wasn't like super crafty stuff.
0: So we in in a tank. Then did you feel pretty kind of like invincible?
1: Oh yeah, it's. I mean, when I was in the tank school. At Fort Knox, it was name tape deflated. You you know, so you're standing so the top half of your chest and above is out of the hatch, so you can see everything better. You know, and I got there like I think that's a little too high, so I decided I would stand on the floor so my eyeball and up was all that was out of the the hatch. Then things seemed a little sketchy. I'd just sit down inside the tank completely and not worry about it. So you feel really good now. Some of my friends had lost tanks to huge explosions that had gone off on them. So I knew they could kill a tank, but it those were pretty rare. Right,
0: but when you still, when you say lose a tank as well, is that lose the tank and the crew, or just like uh the the vehicle has just lost the tracks, engines fucked, that kind of. Mm.
1: Uh, so one of my friends, he had a tank that it it hit it so hard that the turret came off of it and landed over in the field next to it. So
0: giant catastrophic
1: kill on that. Uh, but generally, I mean, they could just damage the tank, and that was about it.
0: And then obviously the issue then is if they follow it up while you're trying to recover it, because obviously you're very exposed, right? you know, kind of at that point. I remember we used to have a lot of bum twitching when we used to have changing a fucking track in the middle of a city. It's not <laughs> nice, you know. Um, yeah, because, I mean, I've never I've never been in a challenger, but just being in the Warriors when you go up in the, up in the turret, I mean, it just when you feel armored steed underneath you. It was pretty amazing. So I can only imagine what it's like when you're in a tank and you've got a 20-millimeter cannon in the Challenger. I don't think yours, I don't know. I'm not very good on inches to millimeters, but I imagine the the, the barrel size is about the same.
1: Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's the same cannon.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, that, that must be pretty dope, and I'm sure you were probably itching for people to open fire on you so you could get that going. Um, what Did you do any ops in that time? in Humvees and what was that like going from a cha- uh, Challenger going going from an Abrams to a Humvee
1: we did a lot in the Humvees the Humvees we had were such a a far cry uh, so we had like three different models of armor packages and they were all like ad hoc things that had been added on and uh, we had one kit one of our Humvees if they got four flat tires you can open the doors because the doors were the first thing that hit the ground <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just isn't good if it ever catches fire. Oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, not only do you lose your cannon, but you lose two machine guns. Uh, so it's, and your armor is significantly less. You know, the, the flip side is you can go a lot of places. You can't go in a tank. Uh, and it's easier to get out and dismount some people to to go talk with the, the local populace. And when we did raids, you could get out of a Humvee so much faster than you can out of a tank.
0: So when you say when you do raids, are you talking the people doing the raid is like a loader and a driver of the tank?
1: Exactly, yeah. So uh, you've got in the Humvee, the the gunner and the driver, they still have the same roles that they had in the tank. So now it's the loader and the tank commander that are bailing out and going and playing infantrymen, just just without the rest of the platoon of infantry guys.
0: It's kind of really funny that like a few years before Iraq, if you wanted to do any kind of door kicking, you'd have to... Find some kind of special forces unit, and then, like in Iraq, it's like right, you (laughs) go on on, kicking it (laughs) off. It's like everyone is now a door kicker. Um, Oh yeah, it's 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 really kind of funny how that happened because I, I, I just, and this is again what I feel that we were really lucky that we got to do so many different things in. In, the, in those tours you know in, in Iraq like Iraq for anybody who was as listening is probably nodding their head you know it's just like today you're going to be this <laughs> like okay today <laughs> you're a policeman tomorrow and tomorrow you're going to tomorrow, tomorrow you're looking for IDs and uh, you can be an engineer to, tomorrow now, oh, then, yeah. now tomorrow you're going to be bomb disposal um, so yeah it's just it's really interesting like that did you did you have an SOP or for, for dealing with IEDs other than just driving past them and getting blown up
1: generally they just blow one up and that's that but in the Humvees, if we thought we had one up ahead, we would stop short, look at it as hard as we could kind of check, make sure we weren't sitting on another one. Uh, and then if at all possible, we would try to get another uh, to the, the Humvees around to the far side of it, take a look at it from the other side, and then also protect that area in between. And then we would call the real bomb squad and the, that route clearance platoon would come out and and find out if we were right or wrong about an IED being there. Uh that being said, in the Humvees, almost never saw him. You just, if it was your day, it was your day. Okay.
0: So, did you have, Did you used to shoot them out?
1: Oh, they really frowned upon that big time. That being said, I've done it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what we're
0: talking about here is using you. You use your co- coax. your fifty cal. Which was your what was your shootout out of choice?
1: The the coax because our our coax is like a sniper rifle. I mean, the gunners would dial that thing in, and you could be so. Precise with that sucker, whereas with the 50 cal, so our 50 cal was not the same as what the M1A1 had, where it's it's on a mechanical mount that's fairly stable. Ours was like a really poorly built bicycle with a machine gun on the front of it, and you're trying to aim the thing with this <laughs> <sounds> bicycle <laughs> handlebar thing, and it's it's fun, but it's about as accurate as me throwing rocks. uh So I, that wasn't really my favorite weapon for. Trying to
0: be precise and hitting a a small target. <laughs> I mean, as a machine gun, and I, I I like the sound of that. Just spraying the whole area. Um, well, so <laughs> when you, when you when you shot, so what we're talking about, by the way, for anyone not following, is just basically finding an ID, shooting the ID, making the ID go bang. Um, is, is the is the, is the is the gist of what we're saying. Um, what was the reason that they frowned upon that?
1: 'Cause if you hit it and it didn't go bang, supposedly it made it super dangerous for the the bomb squad to deal with. Right. Fair enough. Uh which I can kinda see the argument behind that, but why not just send the robot out, put a little block of C4 on it, and call
0: it a day. Yeah, it's also kinda dangerous for him to go to a full stop, but there's no safe way of going up to a fucking bomb. <laughs> like that's just <laughs> you know, that's yeah, it's silly. So while we're on the subject of bombs then. Um let's go back to that incident when you got um you caught some frag. Um how how badly how badly hurt were you and and what was kind of uh, just talk us through that whole situation.
1: So it was uh, taking the tank down the the road from Bakuba down into Baghdad. We'd go down past the university, turn around, come right back up again, and it was it was a setup for an ambush. We knew it, but there was nothing you could do about it. And just outside of Bakuba. Uh, that triple stack of artillery rounds went off and cut a a piece of shrapnel is like maybe an inch by a half inch that went into my arm, uh, my forearm. Then the, the stuff that went into my shoulder was like itty bitty, almost like birdshot from a shotgun. And then I had a piece that was probably spalling or had been forced through the turret ring because it was real flat and curly. That went in, and my groin protector stopped that. Uh, otherwise, I'd have been singing soprano. Uh, so, I mean, it was.
0: Fuck. Ah, so, boy, you, I, got, like, I just want to break this down for people, mate. So, you got your body armor on, and you have a little triangular bit over your, your crown jewels, and that is what stopped. Because I'm just saying this, mate. Because that isn't something. Those crown protectors. If you were British, you would be soprano right now because um, they 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 were not around for Iraq. So that's pretty. That's pretty cool that you guys had those at the at the time. Then that was some pretty good, some uh, some some good fortune. Um, and and what like when when these this hit you? I mean, are you are you like so shocked that you don't know what's going on, or are you in shit? I state got knocked stupid. Thing?
1: Now hindsight, in full disclosure, I had a series of uh, concussions from boxing and football and hockey, so concussions were not my thing. So when I got hit, I got like stupid and I don't remember the blast, but I remember sitting in the bottom of the turret, looking at my arm going, huh, that's not supposed to be there. And then doing what you're not supposed to do, which is reaching down and yanking <laughs> it out of my arm. Uh, and I thought I was with it. I thought I was, you know, still doing my thing. And I later found out that I didn't say a word after that. I was just kind of like wow. gearing the headlights, like, uh, what, what's going on? And. So, the tank was still running, so they, they drove back to uh, Fob War Horse outside of Bakuba, treated at the aid station. You know, the, the shrapnel was really not that big of a deal. Uh, I ended up having to have shoulder surgery a few years later because of it, but not that big a deal. Uh, but the, the head injury from that blast wave ended up forcing me to get evacuated to launch duel to get the brain checked out.
0: And had you taken blast waves from quote unquote soaking up IED ops as well.
1: Not directly. Uh I was fortunate. I, I thought I was like the the lucky dude that it would always miss. So that was the first one that actually hit my tank.
0: We, we we did soaking up IED ops as well in um The Warriors and some of my mates have hit twenty IEDs. And oh yeah. And I'm thinking like they're fucking going to have dementia by the time they're 50 years old, probably. <laughs> but I was like, unfortunately, because at the time it was just like, Oh great. You got away without any injuries. But now we know more about blast injuries and stuff. Now you're like, Oh fuck. They didn't get away without any." This is probably going to come around. Cause uh, you, you were mentioning hockey concussions, football concussions. That's because the more you get concussed, the easier it becomes to get concussed, right?
1: Exactly. And, you know, it's the first one's no big deal. And then the next one's a little bit more and so on and so on. And, you know, you fast forward 20 IEDs and, you know, then it becomes a big deal.
0: It's really weird watching sports now because there'll be a big hit or someone will clash heads and they're like, right, out you go. And I'm thinking, like, we could have really done with this kind of in Iraq. (laughs) Like, you know, like now they're just pulling people out of like, right, go and see the doctor thinking like, you know, this is, this is great, but you know, every time I see it, I just think like how much undiagnosed head trauma is there? Um, you know, is, is there in the blogs? But I mean, we also kind of self-inflict head trauma, like the amount of things infantry people especially hit with their heads deliberately. (laughs) (laughs) So I mean, it, it would be lying to put all the, to put all the blame on the military. I mean, we probably did just try and open every door with our head. Um, what when you when you got injured then what was the kind of the what was was the Casavac process like for you and um where, where did they where'd they end up taking you
1: so from Fob warhorse got flown by a helicopter to Blod air base and they've got a the air force has a expeditionary hospital there where they do a little bit more uh and then there they decided i needed to go all the way to launch tool. so then I got put on a c seventeen medevac flew from there to, I think it's Ramstein Air Force Base that's nearby. And then you go to the hospital at launch duel. And I was lucky. I was, I was outpatient. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't an ICU guy or anything like that. So I got to stay in some barracks somewhere in the area and go to my appointments, uh, that way. Uh, None of which I remember, but, (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh so you still like so concussed at the time you don't really remember any of it
1: yeah so my the concussion i had was i mean i was not stupid i mean i get it i'm already a little bit stupid but not not that kind of stupid and my balance was really disrupted by it yeah so i had real bad nausea i would throw up and stumbled around that sort of thing and that's that's why i got evacuated it was not the shrapnel it was the the fact that my brain was scrambled
0: that's not who you want around weapons.
1: No, no. And it's definitely not who you want leading up a
0: patrol. Yeah, well, to sure. be honest, mate, that usually happens with most officers. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just going to say it. Just going to say it. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe it would knock some sense into some, but I mean, that is, it's a very, it's a very good point though, isn't it? I mean, you know, cause a lot of people, you sometimes you need to be safe from yourself. Right. Oh Yeah you know, you need to be, you need to be removed from, from, from certain situations. Um, and, but, but what was it like for you when you did start kind of regaining your senses? You know, was there, was there a moment where it kind of, you kind of almost like kind of sobering up where you realize like, fuck, I'm actually back in Europe and well, not back in Europe, but I'm actually in Europe. It's probably your first time in Europe, right?
1: No, I'd been in Europe before. Um, but it was, cause I, I had gone to Kosovo and I'd gone to Germany and I had fun there. But this, I mean, this time I was like, this sucks. I mean, this fucking sucks. I'm away from my guys and I don't even have an injury bad enough to justify it. I was pissed. I mean, I was absolutely livid and at the same time was just completely ashamed because I
0: hurt. I was miserable. I mean, I understand where you're coming from. But you know, as a neutral observer, I believe well, you did have an injury to justify it. But obviously, that's you know very different to being in your own head, saying you know, I mean, we've had lads on the podcast and stuff before with legs and arms missing and stuff, saying like, oh yeah, I still could have stayed there. <laughs> <I'm like, yeah. laughs> like, um but so how did you like, like how did how did that play out? Like, did you did you manage to get back out there?
1: So I think I'd been at lunch for like a week or two, and they said, well you can't wear body armor. You can't wear your helmet, but
0: why was it that you couldn't wear helmet body armor?
1: Uh, cause it, my shoulder was jacked up and then my head was jacked up. So they didn't want me wearing those two things. So, I, all right, whatever. So I went back and I remember thinking, this like, this is really stupid. Uh, because we used to get mortared every Thursday night religiously. And then every other random night that they felt bored, uh, Like, when that happens, what am I going to do? But that's cool. And there was an Apache pilot with me who, he went back in a neck brace. So, I mean, it was just like, what the heck? So, I went back. My return to the company was almost at the very end of the deployment. Because it took a while to get back. They'd started shipping stuff home already. I really wasn't needed anymore. And... Nobody really cared, and I, I felt really out of place because uh, my the platoon that they were now my brothers. They would go out on patrol, and I would stay behind where it was safe and sound, and listen to them as they wandered around the, the battle space. And I would keep track of where they're at. But I mean, it's it's really hard to argue that that feels useful. Especially because I was helping two guys out that were more than capable of it.
0: There's the argument, which I believe in, is that it's good to get people back to the front um, to help, you know, once they've had an injury, to get them back into it. But I also think that it's worse to put someone in the purgatory of being, like, in a position you were in. Like, one of my best friends were in Afghanistan, he got shot through the neck and a bunch of other things. And he said exactly the same as you to, to be that close, but not being able to go on the patrols and stuff was just like, was fucking horrible. And, um, you know, it's obviously no one wants to be at home, but at least if you're at home, you've got that separation where if, if you're there, I mean, that must've, um, must've been taking a toll on you. Um, is that something that's kind of, that played out afterwards that, that was, was that kind of, um, something that, maybe shaped your opinions of yourself um or you know the opinions of yourself and also later on you know what your kind of opinions are of that whole kind of uh returning casualties to theater
1: i was pretty pissed about it i was pissed about the circumstances in general i had a kind of a run-in with my company commander about it that kind of forever haunted me Um and, you know, to, to this day, I've never revisited that conversation with him to find out what he actually meant. So I was – it was torture. It really
0: was. Why, what was the uh, kind of like the gist of that conversation?
1: So my company commander pulled me out of the, the CP one night, the command post, and into the dark. And say, like, hey, I want you to know I talked with the guys in the tank. And they said that you were out of the hatch and that's why you got wounded. And I'm thinking, well, out of the hatch. So you think I was all the way up, you know, waist up out of the hatch, really? You know, and it, at the time I was still fresh enough out of West Point, you know, when he started talking to me, I locked it up to the position of attention and I didn't talk back. And uh, so I just kind of listened to what he said and. Didn't really dig into it much, but like, it was your fault. You got wounded. You screwed up. Like, yeah, I put you in for a pulper heart, but I don't want you talking about it. Like you haven't earned that, that right. I mean, that kind of broke my heart, pissed me off a lot. I made it through the rest of the time in that company without ever talking about that incident ever again. Never talked about being wounded in front of the guys. Uh, so I, I, I obeyed that order and I think hindsight t- looking back on it now, I think I understand what he was trying to say, which is, you know, he, he didn't want the guys losing that feeling of invulnerability that we had and talking about getting wounded would potentially bring that doubt. Um, so I think that's what he was trying to say, but and it hurt.
0: So, I mean, presumably, if you were standing halfway out of the turret, you wouldn't have a top half anymore. No, I, I'd be definitely <laughs> a, a screwed. I'm sure, it would be a very nice pair of legs, but yeah, <laughs> a, pair, a pair of legs nonetheless. Um, yeah, I, th- I do. Obviously, we don't have anything like a Purple Heart over here, and I, I do always think with them that there is a double-sided, they're a double-sided kind of two-edged uh, two double sword is what I was trying to get out. Um, because on one side, it's obviously nice to give some people recognition of, you know, something because, you know, there's people out there that win gallantry awards and things, but then there's, you know, the guy that was walking point who loses his legs, who doesn't ever get anything. And to be able to give someone like that a purple heart, probably mean a lot to him. But then there's also then the dangers of people chasing things like that, you know, but then there's the other thing of people not feeling worthy of things like that. And then how much does that play into someone's mental condition, if they feel that I'm not worthy of something that be given, that can actually be really detrimental to them. So, where do you kind of stand on the on the Purple Heart issue?
1: My very first job in the battalion was trying to figure out uh, why some people's Purple Hearts got rejected. So, I kind of got to see a, a wide variety of wounds, and it was really frustrating because you'd have guys that, like, I remember one guy; he got hit by an IED in his Humvee. And the blast wave slapped him up against his armor so hard. He was literally black and blue from his ankle to his head, but it didn't require medical treatment because it's a bruise. I mean, it's literally a full body bruise, but it, it didn't take bandages or sewing up of anything. And his purple heart got rejected. And then you look at me and I, I got a little bit of shrapnel and, you know, I throw a little bandage on it and, we're good, but, you know, it's how can you compare the two? Um, and then at the same time, you mix in somebody who gets blasted in half uh, and they've got the exact same thing. And, you know, it's it, it's it's really hard to reconcile, but I don't have nearly as much heartburn about the Purple Heart as I do the end of tour
0: awards. I want to talk about those in a second, but... Well, while you were just talking about, um, you know, you, are, you got experience of Purple Heart, one of your jobs as well on that first tour um, with the sectarian violence is you had to go in and, and count bodies, right? Yeah. That... So, so so can you just tell us a bit about how that kind of comes around? Because, I mean, that's just one of those experiences that people just probably wouldn't, you know, there's no training for that one, right?
1: No, and there's literally nothing in the world that will prepare you for it. Uh, so in, in the summer of 2006, the the Shia and the Sunnis were at each other's throats and they had the different tribes at each other's throats. And that summer CNN was claiming that a hundred people a day were getting whacked in Diala. and the brigade commander, there's no way it's a hundred. We need to have better data so we can counter this, uh, maybe turn that information warfare nugget around so the solution was is we'll just count the bodies every day so we have an accurate number. You know, taking advantage of the the Iraqi culture's very organized approach to to handling the dead, you know, it's they're on the clock and you know, you count the dead today, none of those will be counted tomorrow because they will have already taken care of them, you
0: know. By that by that you mean they'll have had uh, the the burial services and and all that. Right? Exactly. Yeah, so the,
1: the the families will have already taken care of the bodies with uh, the proper the burials for them. So then uh, in our area, all the dead would get rounded up and taken to the hospital, whether they were dead, dying, or not going to die. Didn't matter. They just, everybody went to the hospital. So then the hospital would be in charge of sorting it all out. So then every afternoon, late in the afternoon, we would go to the Calus Hospital. And count the bodies. And that was something I I would do it myself. I would not, never ask the loader to go do that. Um, There's just some things you just, you cannot delegate. You cannot unload that hell onto somebody else. And the morgue was this metal shack in the back courtyard of the hospital. And, you know, every day when it's 110 plus that metal shack is just baking and you open up the door and you go in there and it's, you're looking at sometimes up to 10 bodies and they've all been maimed, killed by violence. So they're sometimes you got to sort through, make sure you're not missing an arm and that's okay. Or now I've got three arms for one body. So that means I've got another body somewhere. Uh,
0: but it's all in a pile. So you got to kind of sort through it. So with, with, with that then, are we talking death by combat or was this the kind of sectarian violence where people are being picked up, tortured, executed?
1: It's it's all of the above. So some of them wouldn't have a head, obviously. Uh, some of them would be disfigured from torture. Some of them would be torn apart by an IED. Um, some of them would just be a simple, you know, entry wound from a gunshot. It was just the, the wide range. And you never knew what you were going to find that day. Cause a lot of times this stuff would happen and we'd have no
0: idea about it. That's one of the crazy things about those places though. is like, obviously just how much, how much this stuff is happening all over the place continuously that you, like you say, you never really kind of hear about. Um, when, when, when you are seeing that kind of exposure, on a regular basis did you become desensitized to that did it make you worry more about your own physical kind of, in- of integrity I suppose when you're seeing arms off and things like that like how did you start to think about that
1: you know it's I turned myself off you know it's I went in there and I was counting numbers I was not I wouldn't think about who these people were or anything like that. And it got to the point where I was like, all right, I'm done. Let's go to get dinner. And then at the same time, you you try to protect yourself by getting this really twisted sense of humor. And now I'm laughing at stuff that most people would be borderline heart attack over you saying.
0: Yeah. I mean, that is why I'm very much a think defender of, in the military, the rules that we have for speech in civil society cannot apply to the military, or indeed any form of um, medical work, law enforcement, you can't. Um, my friend sent me an article before we came on earlier about some police officers are under investigation for saying some you know, pretty fucked up shit in a group chat, and I thought maybe that's their way of dealing with the fact that they've had to attend a bunch of really horrible calls um you know and, oh, yeah. and it's just like we can't judge that by you know Tom and John selling insurance you know it's just it's just not the same you can't ask these people to do that without giving them the, the the leeway for you know for that kind of uh black humor because it is it is really a coping mechanism um but mate bring it back to the to you know the end of your tour then so would it be fair to say that you know your tour was a bit of a kind of a you know you had got out there on a bit of a high you know had some kind of you know um i will not gonna say good times but you know enjoying the job and everything and then but after you get hit it's a real kind of uh a, like uh a, a, not even a damp squib to the end of the tour but quite a kind of like a depressing end to it
1: yeah it was not just a little depressing i mean it was it's bad uh What made it worse is, you know, I'm stuck inside the the command post. so I'm perfectly safe. And as we're trying to leave, you know, nobody wants to be the last casualty of the deployment. And that's when they started introducing the the more lethal, uh, explosively formed, penetrating IEDs. And, the you know, they raised the ante big time. And it was, I mean, it was heart in your throat time nerve wracking and then you know all i want to do is just go home and finish recovering get back in the platoon we know we're coming back uh and then the new unit shows up and we're moved into the gym and then they turn on the aviation safety beacons which is you know this big bright light up on top of all the radio towers that the helicopters don't crash into it
0: that's the first thing i was thinking. i thought this doesn't sound smart
1: Oh man! And the reason why we didn't have them on is because they would use them as an aiming point, and if we turned them off, they'd blow up the trash pit that was burning. Uh, so it was just—it was almost scarier trying to get out the door than it was coming in.
0: Yeah, I mean those EFPs are no joke. I um, mean, we'll talk—we'll talk, um, we'll talk about your second tour on, a, on another episode because I mean, there's a lot to get into on that one. But thanks so much for your time today, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. In the meantime, is there anything, um, and anything that you'd like to leave the listeners with any words of wisdom? And can you please tell them where they can find you, um, where they can find your book?
1: Yeah. If I could leave one, one bit of wisdom, it would be veterans got to talk. We got to start telling our tell. It's very therapeutic for us, but the civilians need to hear it too. They need to know what they're asking us to do. They need to know what the consequences, what the long-term consequences are, and, you know, seek it out, talk about it. Uh, you know, and that's, that's why I published this book, Strike Hard and Expect No Mercy. It's, uh, it's available on any different uh, book vendor out there around the world. I know it's been read in Europe and uh, Asia and North America. I've got a website that I've got a blog on it. It's just simply strikehardandexpectnomercy.com. And it's 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 got some views on Ukraine and things like that because I'm trying to be a voice.
0: Mate, I'd love to talk more about that next time as well. Um, we'll talk about your talk. We'll talk about that that kind of thing because uh, I, I totally agree with everything you just said. Uh, but Galen, thanks so much for your time today, mate. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks. It's
1: been an honor.